Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, Susan. Hi there. Hi, how are you? I'm good. Good. Yeah, it's been a long time since we talked. Um, you, uh, you're just back from the Middle East, and now you're off to Dubai. Are you ready? Yes, back to the Middle East again for <laughs> for this massive climate conference. Are you all ready? Yes, I'm uh, rested, refreshed, and trying to get you know get used to the nine hour time change from uh, North American time again. So I just want to back up here for listeners who might be wondering: Can you introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, I'm Susan Ormiston. I'm a longtime correspondent at CBC, speaking with you, another longtime correspondent, <laughs> and uh, mostly now digging into global climate issues. And that's why we're headed to this massive annual conference in Dubai. And I'm Laura Lynch in Vancouver. This is What on Earth, where we bring you a world of climate solutions. And today, Susan, who's just returned from reporting in Israel, is here to help us understand what to expect as people from around the world gather in the United Arab Emirates. And we're asking, what's the point of COP28? Now, Susan, since the last round of United Nations climate talks a year ago in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, it seems that more people than ever are experiencing climate change right in their own backyard. What is at stake right now? Yeah, I mean, I think if you look at the last year, uh, you know, for some people outside the normal realm of people who are terrified about what's happening to the planet, this year was kind of like a, a tipping point for them. Across the globe, it's proving to be a hot, sweaty summer. The heat is more than uncomfortable. It's life-threatening, sparking wildfires and driving temperatures to unbearable new highs. I mean, it seemed every month a, a new heat record was broken. We had oceans like hot tubs. New research this morning shows sea temperatures are the highest ever recorded. Forests like infernos, uh, you and BC saw this a lot. Underneath a thick blanket of heavy smoke, firefighters fought back flames. What that means, of course, is that we probably are more ev even more laser focused on this clear imperative of keeping global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius or less, but you know, we're going to be hearing a lot about how well is the world doing and not very well. I mean, just days ago, we heard from a new UN report that warned the world could warm between two and a half and 2.9 degrees Celsius if governments and industries don't take action now to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Can you tell me what the key points are on the agenda this year? Obviously, we're going to be looking at what we just talked about, um, fossil fuel industry, phase out, phase down, uh, curbing emissions at the source, reducing emissions. Clearly, scientists say this is the key determinant of a uh, heating planet and that we have to get off burning fossil fuels, which means industries have to burn less and we have to rely more on green technology. The problem is at COP, as you well know, is we're looking at 200-odd countries in the world, vastly disparate countries, you know, rich, poor, small, big, and they all have to agree on language and literally dotting the I and crossing the T's in the English language. 
and they have to come out with this document, which makes it extremely difficult to get consensus. So one of the things I'm hearing is that maybe there will be other words to describe a similar thing, that it won't be phase out or phase down, which has a certain um, legacy of failure, frankly, to get in that final document. Maybe they'll find a different way to describe that with the same purpose. Can we talk about money a little bit? The the loss and damage fund, which has been talked about over the years, it became a really big issue last year. What are you seeing on that? Loss and damage is essentially another jargon for uh, countries who are disproportionately affected by climate change, who don't have as much power or money, but are vastly affected by the pollution from other countries. So they don't emit very much, but they suffer floods and hurricanes and all kinds of heating and drought as a result. So how does the world help those countries mitigate the effects of climate change? And last year, there was success in this area in that people said, okay, we need a loss and damage fund. And that was agreed on. So step one. This year, though, it's kind of, you know, what are we going to do Who's going to fund it? Let's get this fund up and running by 2024. And in UN language, that's pretty rapid. So we'll see <laughs> if, in fact, they can uh, put that into um, into action in the coming year. And related to that is this whole idea of climate finance, which is about this $100 billion pledge. And Canada's climate minister, Stephen Guilbeau, along with Germany, is in charge of ensuring that nations pay their fair share. And and that money was to help them transition, was to help them adapt to climate change. And we've been so far unsuccessful. We're not at at the mark of 100 billion, but we're hopeful and we should have some data that point to the fact that we're getting there this year. Yeah, I mean, again, we're talking about the disparities in countries. If we're to solve some of these uh, big, big problems, we need to help uh, smaller countries, poorer countries to do it. Uh, and this fund, it's a $100 billion pledge, but it hasn't actually ever come to fruition. And it's about um, helping countries transition to clean technology. So richer countries, many would argue, can afford to do that. They may not do it fast enough or uh, without a huge push, our country as well. But poorer countries don't have that kind of financing to be able to do that and can't get access to loans. So this climate finance is wrestling about how do we help those countries transition to cleaner technologies to get off fossil fuels. I really appreciate your efforts here to to make sense of all of this. I've got another one for you. This is like a quiz. Tell me about the global stock take. Yeah, well, that's the toughest one for me. Uh, Essentially, it's, um, I mean, if you could relate it to your own um, finances, it's, okay, what what are we spending on and where are we going? And what do we commit to? It's our budget. It's our budget, like the world's budget for... um, how are we doing? You know, 2015 in Paris was a hugely significant COP that set some hugely important goals about um, our climate, about targets, and countries looked at that and said, okay, I'm going to commit to do X, Y, Z. Well, this is all about, okay, did you? Every five years, did you? You know, come up with the data and prove to me, Canada, for example, that you have actually made good on your promises. That's what global stock take means, and every country has to do it. It's not surprising to any of your listeners that guess what? 
as the world turns, we're not doing very well. We're not really meeting the targets that we've set out globally, so we have to do it much faster. And I think this year, Laura, as everybody has seen, this year has even sped up the process even more um, that we have to reach targets faster. So for listeners who, who might be listening to you, who might be feeling a bit skeptical about all mm-hmm. of this, what is the value in the climate talks when so many countries around the world are so far away from hitting their climate targets? I think there is a lot of concern about this process. I mean, a UN-mandated process that started 28 years ago was really to get negotiators in a room and say, okay, what's our direction here? It's now estimated this will be the biggest COP ever. 70,000 delegates have registered. They may not all come. That's a massive number of people in one place, not to mention getting there and what that carbon footprint is, which a lot of people talk about. But is this the right forum anymore? Um, and is the process fast enough? You know, this this UN-mandated process where you have to come to a consensus. I mean, you know, we can't solve world wars. So what makes us think we can solve climate goals? Um, there's a lot of concern about whether COP is the place. Smaller countries, Laura, you know this well, for um, poorer countries, smaller countries who don't have as much power but are being impacted a lot, they have one vote just like rich countries. Like, you know, the United States has a vote and so does a small island nation. So for them, playing in this format is vastly important and very important. I do think, though, that there will be some serious discussion about whether these climate conferences should break up into smaller conferences with a a shorter timeline, whether this idea of one global um, consensus agreement is uh, relevant anymore, just because it's happening so fast. That would be what many people are talking about. Susan, I am looking forward to uh, hearing and seeing all of your reporting on this. And um, I'm sure you're going to be having some very long days to come. So I appreciate you talking to us now. Yeah, it's not an easy subject. And there's a lot of detail. Uh, but it, 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 it is inspiring, uh, you know, to, to dig into these issues and try to chart a way forward. Susan Ormiston, thank you. Thanks, Laura. some news about the host country, the United Arab Emirates, since Susan and I chatted. It's about the COP28 president, Sultan Ahmed Al-Jaber, who is also the CEO of the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company, or ADNOC. Leaked documents show Al-Jaber had plans to use his company's role as host of the summit to talk about fossil fuel deals with 15 nations in the run-up to this week's gathering. The documents were seen and verified by the BBC and the Centre for Climate Reporting. And the center's investigative reporter Ben Stockton says since Sultan Al-Jaber was appointed COP28 president in January. He's been basically taking scores of meetings with government officials from around the world, royalty, prominent business people. Um, and essentially, the documents that we got hold of 
are essentially the briefings that are prepared for him ahead of those meetings. And what we found during the course of our reporting was that basically COP28 team members have been told that talking points from ADNOC, which is the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company, and Mastar, which is the UAE state-owned renewable energy company, which Al Jabra is also chairman of that company, uh, the talking points from those two companies must always be included in these briefings. Ben Stockton says the documents include talking points to share with Canada. With representatives of the Canadian government, those included talking points on Mastar and that meeting did go ahead. That was confirmed to us by the Canadian government, but they did say that no commercial interests were raised during that meeting. Stockton says this year's COP28 team in the United Arab Emirates has told him, as well as other media outlets, that they're independent from the national oil company run by Al Jaber. But the internal emails and the briefings that we've obtained, at the very least, raise kind of serious questions about that independence. Now, the Emirates government's response is to say that these meetings are private. And as of yet, it's difficult to know how many countries actually did talk about oil and gas business when they were supposed to be talking about climate. Needless to say, that's all caused a fresh outcry against Sultan Al Jaber. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. Okay, next up, we're going to check in with someone else who will be part of the happenings in Dubai. Ariel, can, can you just start by introducing yourself, please? Sure. Uh, Iklanete. My name is Ariel Tsaekwi Deranger, and I'm a member of the Athabasca Chippewan First Nation and the executive director and co-founder of Indigenous Climate Action. Hello. Hi, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. So, yeah, we're going to be... Uh, you know what we're going to do. We've done this before. I was, In fact, I was looking at the old script the first time we interviewed you in Glasgow. And a lot of the questions are very similar to what we talked about back then. I know. I know. <laughs> and to be honest, some things have changed, but not all things have changed. So, <laughs> so that's exactly what, what we're going to be talking about. Ariel and I met two years ago at the COP26 summit in Glasgow. In fact, this will be the ninth COP she's attended. So the first thing I want to know is why does she think it's worth it to keep going year after year? I think that's always a big question considering how far you have to travel and how much money it costs to go to these places. Why go? I think why I continue to go is that I have seen over my time in participating in these gatherings the growing uh, participation of Indigenous peoples that are not just advocating for action on climate, but they're advocating for a human rights and Indigenous rights approach that's really wrapped up in also fighting for the sovereignty and self-determination of Indigenous peoples. This is important for us because as Indigenous peoples, we not only feel the impacts and the brunt of climate chase change first and foremost, but we are also uh, have tremendous knowledge and skills and ways of knowing and being that can contribute to the climate crisis 
if we are empowered to do so and have our self-determination and sovereignty respected in these spaces. But do you ever feel as though you're banging your head against a wall when you try to say these things? You know, I think one of the things that has to be remembered is UN processes, our politics in general, um, are slow. And we know this. It doesn't matter if you're at the UN or you're at the federal level here in so-called Canada. These processes are slow. And I do have to say that we have seen a tremendous shift since the passing of the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples in 2007. Has it been slow? Absolutely. But uh, following 2007, we saw the development and recognition of the International Indigenous Forum on Climate Change, which is kind of known as the Indigenous People's Caucus, start to really take up space and demand action on Indigenous rights in 2008. Since that time, we've seen the development of the local communities and Indigenous Peoples Platform, which allows us to have a self-appointed body that is giving recommendations to the UNFCCC for the implementation and policy development of climate policy at the UN level. And this is huge. In addition to this, we've also seen that Indigenous peoples are the second largest civil society delegation in these spaces that are at the forefront of demanding real action on climate. So does it feel like we're butting our head against the wall? It can if you're looking for immediate gratification. But the reality is, is the Indigenous Peoples Movement has contributed to strengthening climate policy across the board over the last three decades. Okay, I want to come back to that in a little bit. But first, I just want to ask you, are there people or communities back at home that you'll be thinking about in the midst of these international talks? I think about my own home community that has seen the decline in our keystone species like caribou um, and bison. I see. I think about this in the communities that have been displaced for years because of ongoing forest fires and floods in their communities. Our communities are not just being impacted, though, and I think I need to really stress this. I think about the beauty and the strength that our communities are bringing forward with, with the revitalization of our languages, our cultures, and our values to drive and restore that relationship with the places where we come from in order to bring forward solutions that are driven by natural law and Indigenous culture and values that are really, on the, we're just hitting the tip of the iceberg of the strength and the tenacity and the value that these solutions are bringing forward into the climate negotiations. So I think about the harms, but I think about the strength that our communities have. My own community, obviously, very personally, but I'm actually really excited because there are members of my nation that are coming along this year. Okay, there's a lot at stake for them, obviously. Yes. But, but um, the decision makers at the summits are national governments. And I'm, I'm just wanting to know, in terms of Canada, how much influence do, do First Nations have when it comes to Canada's stance on climate issues? You know, it's really interesting because, like, of course, I want to be Canada's not doing enough because they're not. But the sad thing is when you look at the milieu of all of the different colonial state leaders in these spaces, Canada is doing better than most. The reality is, is the bar is really low. Canada is sort of doing the best in the sense that they are recognizing or mentioning Indigenous peoples throughout their climate policies. They are people that are lending their uh, political power and, and state voice in the negotiations a lot of the time to Indigenous peoples' rights. But what happens when we come back home is those promises start to fall a little flat. 
the funding doesn't quite hit the mark. Uh, we're not actually at the decision-making tables. We're sort of consulted either before, afterwards, and we're not actually getting substantive power to drive forward the decisions that are necessary for our communities to feel that we have an equal voice um, and real contributions to policy. So you don't have that much influence is what you're saying. We have influence. Influence is different than power, though. I think that as Indigenous peoples, we absolutely have space to influence, but it's always hit or miss whether or not governments are going to take that into consideration. And that's where the disempowerment comes. I think that we do have influence, but I don't think we have power. At COP, there's the group that's in the room doing the negotiations, making the decisions, figuring out the wording that goes into the final documents. Mm -hmm. First Nations are not there. There's been complaints in the past that there's too much influence by fossil fuel lobbyists that make a difference in those negotiations. So in that sense, what needs to change? Do First Nations need to get in the room to have that, whether you call it influence or power, to be in those negotiations? Yes. And I think we are seeing more of that. So I think a lot of the time people are asking, like, do we have that type of influence? Um, And what we've seen in the last, I would say, five years is, is a real interesting trend in states providing party badges to Indigenous representatives from their countries. And what we're seeing with that is that we have that same type of influence that we've seen sort of garnered to the oil and gas lobbyists in the past. I'm not saying they're not still doing that, but there is a shift to provide more Indigenous peoples with party badges to participate and influence the negotiators. And I do have to say, though, that being in the room to influence is different than being the person who's negotiating. And we have, and oil and gas lobbyists can't negotiate, but they can influence, and Indigenous peoples are also getting more space to influence. Okay, I just want to follow that up with, though, that language is important to policy creation. What changes to the language do you hope to see this year at COP28 in terms of Indigenous rights? So this year, what we're really hoping to see is more safeguards and recognition of Indigenous and human rights within the context of the negotiations in Article 6, which has to do with carbon market and international carbon market trading mechanisms. Article 6 sort of paves the way for a polluter pay system. So polluters can just pay their way out. They can just buy credit somewhere else and not actually stop emissions at the source. So this allows the continuation of destruction of Indigenous lands and territories in one space. But how, what we're seeing on the converse is that Indigenous lands and territories are being like co-opted or basically you know, taken up by either multinational corporations that need to reduce their emissions for their high GHG emitting projects or states just being like, this is going to be our carbon offset and um, in in many cases pushing indigenous peoples off of their lands and territories so that they can have conservation and or carbon offsets that they can sell into international markets. These are the risks. Keep in mind this hasn't been passed yet, which is why we need grievance mechanisms in there if those types of activities start to happen. Secondarily, we need indigenous peoples to have access to climate finance. Currently, there's no recognition of Indigenous peoples in having direct 
access to the climate finance mechanisms, including loss and damages to the whole globe. It's a state to state thing, not a people and human rights centered approach. And this really puts Indigenous peoples at risk in places like Canada and the entire world. Let's say Canada contributes to the loss and damage fund. It would be Vanuatu accessing the fund, but not the local indigenous peoples of Vanuatu accessing those funds, or let's say Guatemala and not the local indigenous peoples. What the state does with those funds in many cases has never historically benefited the indigenous peoples. And unless there is direct access, how are we actually looking at a human and uh, indigenous rights centered approach to these global funding mechanisms? Now, um, I remember seeing you in Glasgow at the uh, Indigenous Peoples Pavilion. And there were, mm-hmm. there were huge gatherings of Indigenous peoples there and uh, the, the, all these meetings going on. I'm wondering if you have a standout memory from a connection you've made either in Glasgow or, or at another COP, someone you've met unexpectedly that made a big difference for you. I know that over the years I've met people where that they're, they're essentially taking real huge risks by coming and participating in these discussions, particularly from the global south and South America where we're seeing Indigenous climate activists being murdered. Um, There's an epidemic of Indigenous activists being murdered. And um, one of the climate activists that I met a couple years ago in a COP space was recently murdered. And, you know, I think about Berta Carreras and other Indigenous peoples that have continued to advocate for environmental and climate justice that lose their lives every year. And for me, that impact makes me feel like I need to be louder and stronger because at least when I do that, I'm not risking my life. So I have to take my privilege to speak up louder for the peoples that can't speak up because they may, in fact, be killed for doing so. Um, And I also know that it's not about me taking up the space for them. It's continuing to advocate so that they have safety to be in those spaces to speak for themselves. So then what would success look like for you at this COP? I think success this year would be like being a part of that growing course to sort of overcome the largest civil society delegation, which is oil and gas, and being a part of that second largest delegation of Indigenous peoples to demand real frameworks of justice and human rights-centered approaches. We can no longer afford to reduce the climate crisis to an economic crisis. We have to include addressing root causes. The reality is the climate crisis isn't just created by fossil fuels, GHGs. The crisis has been created from a disconnection from our natural space on this planet as a part of these ecosystems. Climate change has been caused by colonialism. Indigenous peoples, our knowledge and our rights provide us a pathway towards decolonization and human and Indigenous rights-centered approaches to the crisis. Ariel Sequi Durange will be watching as COP unfolds, but thank you for now. Thank you so much. It's interesting to think back to the time when I first met Ariel in Glasgow. There was a lot of discussion about the reduced numbers of Indigenous peoples who were able to attend COP because of the pandemic at that point. But they all drew strength from each other when they gathered inside the site where they had their own 
pavilion. And it was interesting to see how they interacted with each other, how they compared notes, how they saw similarities in their challenges, but also differences. And I think Ariel reflected that really well in our conversation. And over the next couple of weeks, we're working on some really interesting stories about the people who are pushing for change at COP28. For example, for the first time ever in the history of these summits, peace will be on the agenda. It's to acknowledge the fact that the climate crisis leads to conflicts. Pakistani climate activist Amira Adil says tensions can start small and then escalate. Well, if you look at a nuclear family between a mother, a father and a child, they're pushed into poverty, essentially. They have nothing left. Uh, it was all washed away by water. So when you have these added responsibilities, the added stress, there's a lot of conflict that starts over there to begin with. And then between families, it's like having to share a roof with maybe all of your siblings, families together, uh, all living under maybe a roof of three rooms. It, it's an insane level of uh, stress on resources, collective resources. And then there's also like community level um, conflict that we saw in which two groups of society are fighting for resources in the form of land that they have. There's conflict on so many levels over here, but essentially it all drives down to the same point, which is access to resources. We'll hear more from Amira coming up on What on Earth. That's all for us this week. The show was put together by Danielle Piper, Vivian Luck, Rachel Sanders, Molly Siegel, Matthias Wilson, and Catherine Rolfson. Special thanks this week to Jill English. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.